and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Jan Bock and I'm the Programme Director of Cumberland Lodge. Welcome to those who are joining us for the first time and also to our regular viewers. Our last webinar took place on the 10th of June and we discussed the challenges facing the charity sector as well as opportunities arising from the state of exception during the pandemic. In case you missed it, a recording is available on the Read, Watch, Listen page on our website, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Today, we are pleased to welcome four guests to discuss the future of UK high streets and urban centres more broadly. We will be discussing the state and perceived decline of urban centres as important spaces of economic, civic and cultural activity. We will explore how the high street might be transformed to suit the changing needs of local communities, also with a focus on innovative social and political spaces and engagements. I would like to welcome our panelists, Claire Bailey, founder of the Future High Street Summit, Councillor Matthew Brown, the leader of Preston City Council and senior fellow of the Democracy Collaborative, Lahari Ramuni, a researcher at the Centre for Cities, and Saskia Sassen, the Robert S. Lynn Professor of Sociology at Columbia University in New York. Welcome, good morning to you all, and thank you for joining us. To those of us watch, to those of you rather watching this morning, do please get involved and submit questions to our guests. You can submit questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our Facebook live stream. Claire, it would be great if you could perhaps start by telling us a bit uh, the work you do um, and perhaps say something about the key trends in the recent transformation of British high streets and urban centres. What has happened and why? Well, thank you for putting me on the spot and making me go first. Uh, good morning, everybody. So um, effectively, obviously, pre-COVID, we saw um, a significant decline in consumer confidence due to political uncertainty that led to a significant fallout with regard to some of the major retailers. And at the same time, we have seen decline in UK footfall to high streets over the traditional opening hours of nine to five, Monday to Friday, for at least five years. Whereas those retail centres where perhaps the opening hours were more conducive to those who worked traditional office hours, or perhaps where there was free parking, uh, so the examples of retail parks and shopping centres, they were less affected. We've seen growth in the evening and nighttime economy, where people were spending more on socialising and spending time together rather than spending money on things. And this was also borne out in the most recent Christmas figures where there was a significant uplift in people buying things like experience vouchers rather than items for gifting. So we were watching a very significant change in consumer behavior for a number of years. And it's fair to say, from my opinion, that the high streets were not responding to the consumer change fast enough and that there was a real demand for digital transformation, an immersive experience which combined uh, social media, digital and um, technological aspects, virt virtual and augmented reality, to e-commerce, to simple wayfinding via apps and, and so on and so forth. Um, then obviously what happened in the very recent three months is the COVID situation landed. And in my opinion, this has massively accelerated the need for businesses that operate within our town centres, whether they be retail, hospitality, leisure or service providers, to pivot, to change business models, and to now respond to a consumer who has been forced to digitally transform, whether they were digitally savvy or not prior. And I think that what we're now facing is unprecedented levels of change, which will require us as place managers and as um, sort of thought leaders, hopefully, in this space to help the place managers and the businesses that contribute to making that place to transform what it is they do and how they do it for the benefit of consumers whose opinions and perceptions will have been fundamentally changed. And if, if, uh, if you looked at an ordinary British high street, how would it have changed over the last 20 years? If someone traveled in time from the 1980s to today, what are the, what are the major changes they would see in urban centers? Well, I don't think there's any such thing as an ordinary high street. Um, and in fact, there shouldn't be. One size fits all is not appropriate. Every single high street, town centre or place needs to de define itself to meet the current and future needs and wants of the community that it's there to serve, whether that be student, residents, retired people, commuters, and also the, the businesses operating within to support each other in a collaborative manner. But if you go back in time and uh, you say 20 years and then mention the 80s, that makes me feel a lot younger, but it's a lot longer than 20 years. Uh, we've seen obviously in the 80s and 90s, 
retailers having what was called, the, they called it the space race, in that the only way to expand your business was to take on more units. And we then entered a phase of Clone Town Britain, where every single place looked the same. It didn't matter where you were, you would see the equivalent of a Boots, a Smiths, a Costa, and so on. All the same old, same old retailers. Then we went through a period of um, rapid change once, uh, first of all, the internet, but that was relatively slow until we saw the arrival of broadband and then later mobile phones and smartphones. So around about 2007, I think it was Steve Jobs announced, um, here is a revolutionary new product that's going to change everything. And it was the very first iPhone and he couldn't have been more right. And since then, the acceleration in mobile commerce and coupled with the um, availability of broadband has accelerated people's ability to access online information. That's not to say digital has taken trade from high streets, but it's created a more connected and more educated, savvy customer. And customers are demanding so much more. As time has gone by, they want experiences, they want social, and they go to different centers for different things. So I think our high streets are just lagging behind consumer change. But let's face it, high streets have been in existence for three to 500 years. That's why we have historic buildings in high streets. But simply what's happened within the high streets changed to respond to consumer need, as opposed to the high street itself dying, which is probably one of my most hated phrases I see in the media. But it is a period of painful transformation. And um, certainly I believe it's now down to those businesses who are very connected to the customer, deliver an amazing experience and are able to predict the current and future needs and wants of the people that they're there to serve. Only they are going to be the ones that survive this. Beyond that, the fallout is likely to create considerable amounts of empty space, which needs to be creatively repurposed again with the needs and wants of community in mind. Thank you. And, and talking about these transformations, um, Matthew, you obviously have lots of experience from transforming the city of Preston as well. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about that journey and uh, what your experiences have been and what kind of developments you, you have sought to implement in order to make sure that the high street, the centre remained attractive? Yeah, I mean, the, the situation in Preston is uh, one that does go back some years because we really got caught up in the financial crisis of 2008 in the sense for quite some time we're trying to work with very large developers to regenerate our city centre with us and about nine years ago those plans sadly um, kind of like failed so we had to reimagine what we wanted to do within the high street so we very much had a situation where we're working around a, a collaborative approach so within Preston with the administrative centre of Lancashire the county so not only do we have the council, we've got uh, a second council's headquartered there. There's two councils, there's a university, we've got a hospital as well, which is nearby. So what we thought is that because we're having problems with both austerity in the sense there's less money for the public sector to spend, but also trying to get inward investment, we tried. We, we thought we'd become a lot more resilient, try and reimagine uh, the city centre and the wider community around what we have already and try to... Uh, make that a central part of what we want to do. So we are regenerating our city centre and it's based around the assets that we have already. So we're going to build a cinema and crucially that cinema is going to be in city ownership. Uh, we're, we're investing in our Harris Museum as well. Uh, but we're looking at other ways to try and put more democracy into the local economy as well because we're very keen on cooperative businesses and things like community land trusts and other forms of... Uh, economic activity that's going to be rooted in the community. We're also establishing with partners a regional cooperative, a cooperative bank because I think now we're coming to this COVID crisis and before that we had austerity. So these have been very difficult things for the British people and people in Preston especially to actually go through. I think we need a new mindset and one of the positives that has come out of something that's really uh, horrible with the pandemic is you are seeing a growing sense of cooperation. And you are seeing a change in people's behaviour. And the reality is, is that in Preston, our unemployment rate just in two months has gone up from 3.7% to 7%. And that is still below the Northwest average. So other places in the Northwest of England are a lot worse. And again, the reality is as well, is people are actually, I think, cycling a lot more. They're exercising a lot more now. They're doing a lot more work online. So we really need to reimagine uh, the city centre and the high street based around that kind of new mindset and especially around that sense of community. So, I mean, we've got some plans for Preston going forward and obviously a big part of that is looking at how we can, you know, get away from this perhaps 
overly commercialised mindset that we have because I read a fantastic report sometime back by the New Economics Foundation called Clone Town Britain and it basically said that if if high streets are just dominated by the same chain stores that you see in every city, it has a really negative effect on community life in the sense people are actually less likely to volunteer, they're less likely to actually vote, uh, less likely to get involved in community activity. So I think because we've been through quite a collective trauma uh, with the, the pandemic, and before that we had austerity where people have struggled as well, I think we've got to try and build something new. And I think the work in press is very exciting in the sense that we're trying to build community wealth. So we're basically saying we've even got to look at the ownership of the local economy, that it can't just be about multinationals that come and go as they please. It's going to be based around what's going to be here anyway and making sure the rewards of what we produce within the city centre and the wider press of the economy is shared around. And again, you know, we're looking to expand the number of cooperative businesses and there's very strong evidence base that people who work in cooperatives they get paid uh, a lot more. They have more of a say in how their own business works and other really positive uh, health benefits as well. So I think we can take something positive, hopefully, out of uh, something that's been really traumatic and, and move that forward. So thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the debate today. And if I can follow up on that, people people often talk about the Preston model, and of course, this is a model as you as you just explained that was developed in response to to austerity and to the the economic financial crisis. Has this model now been rendered irrelevant by the pandemic, or does it need to be expanded? And to what extent can it be can it be scaled up to different places? If, as Claire said, every place has such different social, economic, civic, and cultural uh, realities. Well, I think it, I think it's got, I think it's actually more relevant. Uh, now than it was before and there's about 30 or 40 parts of the UK that are actually launching community wealth building strategies so North Ayrshire have done, Newham have done, Islington, Wirral, uh, the north of Tyne, uh, there's many places that actually the Welsh, the Welsh government are looking at these ideas as well and it's basically saying that you know we should try and be more resilient and try to you know buy from local businesses become living wage employers, look where we invest, look where we hire, look what we do with our land and assets. But it's very much saying that we need to move to a new economic model because the reality is is that um, in this country, we are still the most unequal uh, country in the European Union, I think, out of the original 12 founders. And, you know, that might be okay if you want to get on and you're one of the very small number who can be really successful, but there's many who aren't. And if you look at the health inequalities that are caused by that economic model. Uh, too many people's life chances are just not what they should be. And the way you actually get around that is you spread ownership around more people. So whether that's local businesses, uh, cooperative businesses, social enterprises, raising wage levels, providing more affordable housing, like housing cooperatives, we've got one in Preston, and it's fantastic. We need a lot more of that. And I think you've got to bring that spirit into the the high street as well and i think there's there's there should be more community ownership of the high street because ultimately it is a community space as well and it's got to be centered around being creative and also the cultural sector too and i mean some of the best high streets in my opinion are uh, places like bristol and york where you've got this really imaginative independent creative zeal that comes from within that that community uh, so that's just my opinions on that Great, thank you. And just a quick reminder to everybody at home, and then I'm going to ask you, Claire, uh, if you'd like to submit questions to, to the audience, please do so. You can do it by using the Q&A function on the Zoom live stream, by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge, or by commenting on the live stream on Facebook. You can also submit questions anonymously if you direct message us on Facebook or Twitter during the course of the webinar. Um, Claire, you wanted to respond to what, what Matthew just said and then well, Alahari mainly as well. to completely concur because the Clonetown Britain report and other data that was collected through people like the British Independent Retail Association and so on proved that um, although the model is almost like this is the thing that we need to move towards, for instance, the ingredients must be successful economy, good employment, the needs of the community are met. That's great. So a, a similar model can be adopted by places, but the ingredients from the bottom up that make the place successful will be dependent upon the community. Uh, but the data I remember reading quite a few years ago was around vacancy rates and footfall. And some of the most so-called successful places, if measured on the number of visitors and the least possible vacancy rates, typically had around 68% of all the businesses 
as independent, whether that be an independent lawyer through to an independent grocer. But what was interesting was the independents tend to occupy smaller units. But in terms of the choice that was presented, over two thirds of the choice to the consumer was unique, adding the character and vitality to the place. But also, and I'm sure Lahari will back up on this um, in her work, but the Centre for Local and Economic Studies worked with the Federation of Small Businesses to say that for every pound spent with a local independent business, 50 pence of that would potentially be recycled back into the local economy, for instance, because they would buy local and they would employ a local window cleaner and a local carpenter to do the fixtures. Whereas for every pound spent in a major chain store, perhaps only 5% of that or 5 pence of that would filter back into the local economy. So your money as a consumer is 10 times more valuable to your community when spent with a local business, uh, according to this study. So I think in terms of what Matthew's just said, absolutely would concur and that data hopefully would still be the case and bear that out. Thank you. Uh, Lahari, you wanted to respond to Matthew um, as well? Yeah, I just wanted to add a slightly different perspective to this. Uh, I think, you know, from if we focus, if we take the focus out of the high street a little bit and look at the city centre as well, what we find in our research is that the city centres with lots of jobs and lots of office jobs tend to have the more successful high streets and on measures that Claire just mentioned, so vacancy rates and things like that as well. So I think when we talk about high streets, we also need to not just talk about the retail, but also what's going on around it. And it, this varies based on what kind of place you're talking about. If it's a smaller place, then you need footfall in the form of residences and people coming in and going and businesses on the street. Whereas if you're talking about much bigger places, like say, if you're talking about Manchester city center, then you need the office space that brings people in on a day-to-day -day basis and that's what sort of keeps the footfall going and the businesses afloat. I just wanted to, to bring Saskia into this one, <laughs> if, if, if I may. Um, hello. Because Saskia, hello. <laughs> Could you maybe tell us a bit about the, the wider social and economic trends that are currently shaping urban centres in the UK and, and elucidate to what extent these might be global or national trends rather than, than local ones and situate these changes in, in yeah. wider developments? Yeah, yeah, no, very good question. This has been an extraordinarily interesting set of comments that have happened. So that's very good. Um, well, I mean, just thinking of it, take a city like New York, New York City, right, where I live mostly. Um, it's a formidable power center. So right now we have a situation, for instance, this is, but this is a major issue, but it's just one instance, where high finance which can financialize anything. In other words, a broken pot can be financialized and made into an asset. The materiality is what counts. If you take that as an example of how far this can go, then you understand that many buildings, many, all kinds of entities are now in the hands of a type of system, which is high finance, which can transform anything into assets. And the assets are not necessarily materialities that you see. They, they, so so the, to, for me, one of the big threats that our cities and city centers, I loved some of the descriptions of the city centers that we just heard. Uh, it, it's the capacity of high finance to literally extract what they want to extract from a situation and not care about whether, you know, shoppers will come, etc. It's just a completely different vector. Now, this vector has been in play for about 10 years, but it's getting only more and more aggressive. And so again, the image, I don't, I, I'm trying to communicate rather than confuse, okay? This is a bit of an abstract subject, but it's my obsession of the moment, at least. And that is that anything, a broken pot, as I was saying, metal pot, <laughs> can be made into an asset. So the investors are buying that. They don't know if they're buying a broken pot, but it's a materiality, it doesn't matter what it is. Now, when you put that in the context of the urban condition where visual orders, nice streets, corners, you know, all of these things matter, then you can begin to understand why, for instance, the, the business center of, in, in, in New York has lost a lot of its charm. You know, it used to be there was a pleasure to walk around and including the big buildings. Now, 
there is a, a sense, a real sense of an emptiness or something that is impenetrable. And, and, and so the, the, the bigger question that hangs over all of this for me is how long can we keep these centers where London is fantastic with all these multiple centers that it has. How long can we keep that? And here is a possible negative scenario that the financial system financializes, financializes, then it's done with that. And then it leaves behind quite a few sort of operations that are only barely functioning, uh, all, all kinds of sort of buildings that don't have a clear, you know, a clear function. Why do we want that building here? But there it was, and it was used. Extractions happened, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just the most negative. We're we are still really enjoying our cities. I love the city, and I think many good things are happening. We have new generations. But beneath that ground bubbles something else, which is an extractive mode where high-level financiers who do not care about people's pleasures in a city, I mean, that's not their business, uh, can really wreck things and, and create a form of silence and death. You know, it's kind of death. You de-urbanize. You may have the high-rise buildings, but you're actually de-urbanizing. And so that's a whole new language that we need to develop and a new type of visual order, you know, an interpretation of an emergent visual order that may just look like it's familiar, but it's actually not really uh, a live element that makes a city function. Now, since all of you have described beautiful stuff, I took the liberty <laughs> to bring in this transversal element, which is a problem. I mean, a city like, like, like New York, you know, Manhattan has this problem. We have vast, huge buildings standing empty but the money was made and the buildings are still delivering because they simply function as assets you know they could have been anything it's not about people that's the extreme case i want to emphasize it's the extreme case if I, if I can just follow up on that, you just talked about people, obviously both the UK and the US are still democracies where people can shape the fate of government, can, can shape cities, can shape urban spaces, the ways in which they want to live and, and engage themselves as citizenry. So what's the role of citizens at the moment? Are they pushing back? Um, are there good examples of, of ways yeah. in which citizens are seeking to transform cities, reclaiming the city? Or is, yeah. this, is this a lost battle against the, the power of global financial capital? No, in, in a way, the, the, the battle has happened. We didn't notice necessarily, you know, we, we the average citizen. Oh, yeah, there was a battle. Oh, yeah. So, but we have experienced the consequences in one way or another, you see, and, and I'm sure that one can get into the little details and discover that one has experienced the negative. But um, no, but I think what's happening now is that, number one, you have major cities that, that have lost people and you have tall buildings that are not fully occupied. That may not be the case in London. See, London is an extraordinary type of city because it has so many centers. Uh, in most, you know, most big, like whether you're taking a Brazilian city like Sao Paulo or you're taking New York, you don't have that kind of multiplicity of little centers that you have in, in, in London. London is absolutely exceptional in that sense. And it's a great treasure. It should be protected. You also have, I know, a center sort of that is still functioning quite well, but it's especially the multiple, multiple center. Take, take New York, I mean, uh, uh, London, how many centers you have. And, and if those are also tend to be owned privately rather than by a big, you know, multinational, it makes, all the difference. And in that sense, they need to be protected. By the way, we also need the big ones, you know, which have all kinds of things that the, the smaller sort of firms would not have, shops would not have. But we really should not lose that older mode, which is a lot of smallish firms that occupy a center. And in a big city, you have multiple centers. A city like London has a lot of centers. Um, we shouldn't lose that because that really sort of is the humanizing aspect of cities. And it also means a kind of conviviality, a kind of mutual 
respect and recognition. The big corporate centers, they don't recognize us. So this is now, this is the most, since I have so little time, I give you the most extreme version, okay? <laughs> but it, it's, it's a problem and we should be aware of it and we should combat it. And I see already people in, in both in London and in New York City who are recovering that older moat, set up a little shop. And you see more and more people, residents, who are interested in enabling that little shop. That's great. 20 years ago, it wasn't that way. 20 years ago, it was all the big, you know, international, the, the ones that sold the same kind of dress all over the world, huh? that kind of shop, the same, you know, objects. I'm a very happy person, by the way, huh? no matter <laughs> all the negatives. <laughs> Oh, no, it's a great analysis. And, and Claire, you said you wanted to, to get back and respond to some of that. Yeah, well, actually, um, on both of these two points, because I think what much as cities were the past, if you look at some of the major corporates, uh, home working and the future after COVID may see home working being offered. And um, I happen to have had my house on the market recently and had a lot of interest for a property in rural Lincolnshire, which is an hour and a half door to door to King's Cross, but equally three and a half hours to Edinburgh. I had a lot of interest from people in uh, large cities and cultivations who were looking to change the way and pace of life. And also we're seeing corporates saying, you know what, we're gonna make home working an option for people ongoing forevermore. Then the knock on implications of that is the centers where high numbers of employees are based will perhaps have fewer people, more of the empty buildings that are described only yesterday, the news from Pret-a-Manger, who have uh, located their outlets for lunches for people at work in cities, in the main, uh, showed that the footfall because of home working has decimated their sales. And I've got a belief that we will see a migration perhaps over time as a result of the pandemic away from being within a commuter belt for a city, away from corporate ivory towers that cost a fortune to rent and service, to a much more fluid infrastructure where people can increase their quality of life. And I think then the knock-on effect of that will be a rebalancing of both the commercial and residential property values across the UK, putting more communities back into the heart of small market towns and rural centres um, who will then work from home or have community working hubs and will perhaps congregate in uh, for team meetings and so on, perhaps in uh, conference rooms in hotels, rather than having to have the glorified big office culture, which was perhaps something that people felt they needed pre-pandemic, but we've all proven that as a result of what's been happening, we can actually successfully continue without the need for that sort of structured workplace. I know it's good for people's mental health to be able to congregate in a workplace, but the implications on city centres who have, as Saskia rightly said, enjoyed good footfall and low vacancy rates as a result of the people that commute to those centres for work, that may change and they may then start shifting to more of the local communities where they live. And that hopefully will see an interesting transformation of everything, the way we work, socialize shop and enjoy the places we live that's that's good that's that's really interesting and a good good follow-up on saskia's point and i think uh, lahari you wanted to respond as well um yeah but i'll i'll do the, i'll do this in two parts because there was something that saskia said that prompted something and what claire said that prompted mm -hmm. something as well. so to go back on what saskia said about a the ownership structures and who owns what making a big difference in cities I think it's not just in the big successful cities like in New York or London where we see this being a problem. I think we also see this being a problem in smaller places where they're not as successful. So it's not too unusual to hear stories of a department store or a supermarket deciding actually we'd rather hold this space empty and pay the lease on it and run this shop. And that's really, really problematic for the place. It might not be for the corporations that are dealing with it, but what we need is a change in institutional structures. And as Matthew said, we are the, one of the most unequal countries in Europe, but we're also the most centralized and we need some devolution of power to the local areas that understand the needs of these places better to be able to transform them. And that means both power and also money. Yeah. Yeah. And then to go back to what Claire was saying, I also agree that 
I mean, homeworking has been transformed. The pace with which we do it is completely different. And I think we just need to be a little bit careful though, because at the moment about five to 10% of people across UK cities work from home. And we did some analysis on how many people could possibly work from home and in places where you know, you've got more of manufacturing jobs or more of the public sector, uh, well, health jobs and things like that, it's about 20%, like how, whereas when you look at London, it's about 50%, um, nearly 55 to 60%. So I think the scale of this is going to be very different across places. Absolutely. Matthew, did I see, did I see your hand go up there? Yeah, just to respond, I mean, I think these are, some, these are all really excellent points. I mean, the issue within Preston is that areas of the north often, and perhaps other places like northeast and uh, Yorkshire, um, they have difficulty attracting the inward investment that you get in large cities like London. And one of the, one of the reasons for that is the imbalance in public sector investment in, in infrastructure, things like transport. So London, for example, will get twice as much in terms of, um, you know, um, you know investment for transport as the north. So it's difficult to attract investment in that way. And that's why within Preston, we're trying to be more resilient by doing things like saying, well, we've got to look at the ownership of the, the local economy and look at potentially establishing our own banks and supporting our lo local businesses. I mean, the work we've done about around procurement, trying to uh, buy goods and services from the local economy, that has uh, put an extra 75 million pounds back into the Preston economy. And I was worried when we did that because I thought, is that going to be at the expense of uh, businesses in uh, Darlington or York or Blackpool? But what we found is a vast majority uh, came from being at the expense of quite large multinationals and corporations that were headquartered in Greater London and the South East, which have lots of wealth anyway. And, you know, this is, this is a key issue. And again, if you go down to London, even though they are attracting all this investment, it's not being shared around. So obviously, if you're looking at the house price, in London. A big part of that is down to the ownership uh, issues within London in the sense that, as has been said by uh, the experience in New, uh, by the New York professor, that is, you know, it's often uh, um, investors that come and go at a, at a whim that are causing these issues, really. So I think out of the pandemic, we, really, we need to look at something really new out of this. And I think the idea that people are cooperating now is really positive. And I think people actually realise what's important as well, because if we're all at threat and at risk, then people actually start thinking, well, while we are here in this world, you know, let's try and value each other and value community and value and even try and enjoy life. And I think this, you know, commercialised individualistic attitude, I think people are seeing through that now. And I think, you know, I think this recent pandemic has actually built a new mindset. We've all got to try and build on that, especially when we look at how we reimagine our high streets and city centres. Can I say something? Sure, uh, please do. So there is a film that uh, was, was where Leilana Farhani, who was in charge of the housing question for the big United Nations, it's sort of a global operation, but the film is called Push. Push as in push out. <laughs> and it, it's an amazing film. I really recommend it. And Push is easy to remember as name. So at a push. And it shows how one major investor, a financier, I mean, major, he's one of the top investors, uh, has been buying up these big buildings, which are basically for low-income people. He throws everybody out who's in those towers. And he's been doing this in 17 countries. I mean, this is just extraordinary. And again, I, I recommend the film at, at, at Push, because there it develops it in great detail. But anyhow, so this is a yet another modality. So you have one of these top owners of buildings who is also a top financier. And this comes from finance. This is not small entrepreneurs or local firms. No, this comes from high finance. And you could ask yourself the question, what is high finance doing, meddling with the housing question? And a lot of these big buildings are for modest income people. So you have this encounter, very powerful financial firm who begins to take control over more and more 
modest housing and it's happening in London. It's, it's happening, we have tracked now 17 countries where this is happening, including Germany. You always think of the Germans as a well-managed economy. They would not give in to a bandit. Well, <laughs> this guy has made, but, but so, so I, I think that there is this broader zone of very powerful actors and that now have gotten engaged by the housing question. And it's not the housing question a la Marx, it's their kind of housing question, which is really assets. What we see as a building, they see as a materiality that can be bought, sold, bought, sold, bought, sold in one day, many times. And you make money every time you buy and sell. So that is a very powerful actor in play now in the housing question. And London, New York, Berlin, I mean, you have a whole set of cities that are prime, uh, sort of prime objects of desire, not because of the housing question, but because of the building, the materialities involved. That via, you know, like I said, it, it gets financialized and it's just assets. It could be anything. It could be a very poor little house that can be transformed if you have a million of them, huh? transformed into an asset. Now, this is a modality that nobody who's involved in the housing sector you know, can then also engage. So what it calls for really is, is a connecting with those who are focused not, who don't know much about housing, but who know about this financializing bit that's happening. You know, in other words, critics and not supporters of the system and, and people who are concerned about housing. And it's happening in all our major cities. Uh, it's now hit Paris, you know, it's a, it's a mode of grabbing that is dressed in the clothing of great intelligence and and great power and everything supposedly uh, you know legal but it's dodgy and i think i'd like to follow up on that with a question we have from mark and maybe lahar maybe you can say something to this um, mark is asking how do we attract new independent businesses to the high street when rents and rates are so high um, do we need landlords to embrace a new mindset and offer affordable rents in the first year or two of a business trading, for example? Lahari, if you, if you would like to respond. Um, I think this sort of relates to what Saskia was talking about as well. I think uh, there's a slight issue at the moment in that the rents and in a theoretically functioning market, the rents, are, the rents or the prices of the property should adjust to what what is what is needed in the community so if there if there is something empty then the landlord theoretically should say oh actually i'd rather let it out at a lower price than have it empty but that's not happening because then that means that you have to revise your asset values down and that has impact in terms of investors so it's yeah. in a local level it feels like a very very particular problem, but it's sort of interconnected to a lot of these things. And I think the way that we can sort of fix it would be to put power in local local authorities and local organizations' hands. Claire, you had, you had a point to make about independent businesses and how they can be supported as well. Yes, I'm torn on this because before you take on a retail outlet, you are mindful of the fact that to have such an asset to your business, you are going to have to pay rent and rates. I do agree that um, there are landlords out there, independent landlords who recognize that giving rent reductions so that the retailer will bear the business rates on vacant premises is in their interest. But there is, as mentioned, institutional landlords who've got um, you know, commitments to servicing pension funds that if they take discounts, obviously the knock-on effect is pension funds return less. So it puts less disposable income in the hands of pensioners who spend a lot of money in high streets. So there's this whole, economic balancing act but nonetheless um, if I'm working with an independent retail client um, you know some of the most important factors to consider are do they actually present themselves well so you know you you could take on a unit in the high street and I always say the rotten apple spoils the cart so probably over to where Matthew works you need people who are in place management who are looking at the total street scene the public realm their their responsibility is to drive the footfall but then the businesses is to convert that footfall by looking appealing getting their branding right getting their messaging across and then once you've got people across your threshold and they're browsing your product range you have to have the right types of product at the right prices you know classic retailing skills and you can't you have to analyze your data constantly and make sure that you are selling 
profitably. And this is a, a significant issue for a lot of independent businesses. They believe that they have to discount to match the prices of the, the big box retailers who are working on volume dynamics, as opposed to uh, what some of the things I say in my talks is, be like Stella Artois, reassuringly expensive, because you don't go to an independent retailer to buy, uh, they have the same experience as a discounter. You go there for the enjoyment, the, the knowledge of the retailer. And I think that we need to remind the independent retailers to be bold and courageous. And I've seen this during the pandemic. People who've never been online before, and it wasn't really relevant because they had a, a decent loyal following. They've had to learn how to communicate with customers through digital channels, and they've been very, very creative. They might not have a website, so they talk to their customers via Facebook, Instagram, and channels. They then say, if you'd like to buy the product, we can deliver free of charge within five miles. We'll drop a parcel off at your house, and we'll take a payment by Bax or PayPal. And that's online commerce, but it's kept them engaged. It's kept the loyalty levels up, and customers have admired what they've done. And I think they will be the ones that retain those customers in the long term. But if you're not innovative and you're not embracing the important role technology pay, plays in loyalty, customer engagement, communication and retention, and if you don't do everything constantly to be the best business you can be and have a business plan that allows you to absorb your rent and rates, then in reality, somebody else will. And if your business isn't viable because of the rent and rate charge, I mean, sometimes it's a little bit harsh, but unless there is huge vacancy and an incredible surplus of retail space in the market, which may suggest to people that they need to reduce their rents, if it's just that one or two retailers that are saying it's too expensive for me, then maybe they need to go back to the drawing board and say, well, why am I not selling enough or why am I not making enough profit to absorb the cost when perhaps three or four shops down the street are so it, it, it's maybe a little bit harsh in some respects, but on the other hand, there is a duty between the place manager and the businesses that occupy the place to, for the place manager to throw the footfall past the shops and the shops and the restaurants and the bars and all the businesses that trade there, their duty is to engage that customer, draw them in and to then sell products at a profit in order to sustain their cost base, their employees and all their other commitments. And I, I think that that's really important to consider. And too few people are actually asking, well, if that business isn't viable, maybe they just aren't selling what people want. Maybe there's a good reason for certain businesses to go out for making the way for new and more entrepreneurial, maybe more innovative businesses to move in, which is part of the painful process of transformation. Oscar, it sounds like Claire's talking about creative destruction there. <laughs> I like that, creative construction, good. Did you say that actually, creative construction? Oh, I thought creative destruction, but I think... <laughs> what, 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 are, what are your thoughts on, on the points Claire just made, Saskia? Uh, well, I mean, Claire clearly is extraordinarily knowledgeable about all kinds of factors that are in play uh, in a city like, like London. I don't know where you live, Claire. You live in London or not? Far I live in a small rural village, <laughs> but I lived in London and the surrounding home counties for 21 years, and I've lived all over the UK, so... Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that that the, the negatives that I described, uh, the, the grabbing, the using of cities and buildings in cities, etc., that, you know, it, it will... It will everything is a curve, but right now, this extraction, you know, this notion of an extractive sector that grabs, it's quite, um, it's quite powerful. And I don't see it ending tomorrow, let's put it that way, right? So it will take a bit of time. Um, I do think that people have become, I have a sense certainly in, in, in New York and in London, as far as I can tell, in Berlin also, uh, cities are mobilizing around the urban question. You know, this has been happening for 10 years at least. This is very interesting. There was a time when it didn't quite happen that way. You know, one, one didn't mobilize around big buildings. I mean, what were you going to do? So I, I do think that, that there is a real sense about the urban condition that sees the urban condition as a, as a significant and important space that matters to all of us. And that recognition that the city is about publics, 
It's about enormous diversities. You know, all these characteristics that mark a city, which make it so complex and so intractable, partly ungovernable, you mentioned all of that too, of course, one should. Um, but at the same time, there it is. And in my reading, we, the people, so to say, even though some of us might be a bit privileged, though it's not, but so most people are not privileged to live in a city. Um, we should really hang on to this. The city should matter. It cannot simply become, you know, depots, big depots, like we have that problem now in Manhattan. That, you know, some of these firms, they just buy a huge amount of space and build something that is going to be a holder of all kinds of objects and things. And that's a killer for a city. So, so the city is both very powerful. It has been long there. It precedes empires and everything. Cities, you know, we have had cities for a very long time. But at the same time, there are fragilities and we should sort of enable. And one thing that came up regularly here, um, modest little shops, you know, that belong to a neighborhood in a way that are part of the neighborhood. That's a challenge, but we all hope, of course, that they will survive, you know, that they will not go under because it matters. It matters, it matters to all kinds of people who, for whom that is a connection, that, that is a safe place, that, I, I don't know, it's just, it matters. Uh, a shop can be a refuge, a momentary refuge, a place where if you have been followed, like has happened to me in New York, by somebody who clearly wants to bother you, you step into that little shop and that person disappears from the scene. Mostly men, yeah? but the same person. So there are these strange little moments when you suddenly recognize the, the, the positive, the value, the strength of a city. You know, an urban zone is another way of putting it. Anyhow, I'm, I'm becoming a bit too, um, yeah, yeah, enough on that. But you get the picture, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, um, and Lahari, if we can follow up on this. Saskia talked about diversity, and diversity is a strength of cities. Until very recently, um, one of the key urban trends was gentrification, you know, working class neighborhoods transforming, hipsters, young professionals moving in. There doesn't seem to be much talk about gentrification anymore today when we talk about urban trends. Is that because it's done? Gentrification has happened or has it subsided? Or is it, is it actually seen as something positive because it does bring innovation and energy and enterprise uh, into cities? Um, that's an interesting question and one that I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> um, has gentrification stopped? Um, no, I don't. I don't particularly think so. But I think it happens in different ways and different scales to what we see, what we used to see. Whereas previously, you may have had bigger, big areas like Hoxton in in East London, sort of transforming over time. You get the pockets, and I think it's a lot more about sort of suburbs transforming at the moment, uh, as opposed to the centres that are so visible. But I think it sort of points to a bigger problem as well, which is, you know, we're not building enough houses in the in the UK and we're definitely not building enough houses in the, in the cities, which is why you get this argument of who gets to live here, whereas, you know, if people want to live here and if there is demand for it, people should be able to live here. Um, so it's, it's sort of a symptom of a different problem of house building more than anything else, I think. And Matthew, maybe I can bring you in on this. What has your experience been with, with gentrification? Has that been a part of the Preston model? And how did, you, how did you manage to use it in a way that it doesn't displace traditional communities, um, but, but rather enhances the, the urban experience or the urban condition, as Saskia said? Yeah, we, obviously, gentrification is really more uh, in, the, in the south of England, up in the northwest where, where we are. So it's not an issue in that respect. But we do have issues with entrenched poverty in our community and that is something that we're trying to address really and obviously if you talk about participation I think trying to get the more deprived communities involved in establishing businesses that may operate in the city centre is something that you know that we've got to look at and again we've we've re we've re uh, basically rebuilt our markets in the last two years and we've got some fantastic independent trains in there the market's obviously in council ownership very diverse group of people operating from 
many of them from the less well-off communities. So I think you've got to look at those methods to try and actually really reimagine it, reimagine the, the city centre. Um, we've got to tackle these inequalities in every way that we can. And I think we've got to look at health inequality as well and make sure our local economies are based around health inequality. Because the reality is, is that health inequality uh, is a result of the economic model mainly. The largest social economic determinant of ill health is the fact that you're in poverty. So whatever we're doing in responding to how we get out of the pandemic and the opportunities there and how we imagine our city centre, it needs to be done with that in mind, I think. Uh, and I think that's also things like looking to build more social housing in city centres, because in Preston we've had a bit of an issue at, at times in um, you know, tra- developers, housing developers have said, well, it's not really viable to uh, build social housing in the city centre, but we could build it out of town, so we've got to look at issues like that. But I just think for a wider angle, we've got to really, really also encourage uh, how we view the city centre, and that's going to be based around community, but also about creativity, because we're doing lots of very, we've got a very strong creative sector in Preston. I, I want to see them play more of a, a role in the city centre because I think people really enjoy when people can express themselves creatively and, and enjoy that experience. But also in business as well, you find that the most creative businesses are the independent businesses. You know, I think, um, you know, having a, a dominance of the same, as I said earlier, the same chain stores, I don't think it's necessarily good for creativity because it's all about branding, it's all about uh, status in the sense that if people don't have a certain brand, the scene is being inadequate. And I think trying to move to that really creative economy is one where we can really actually build a lot more of a kind of equal mindset in our communities. Claire, you wanted to get back up. To yeah, I, I really that. agree with Matthew about independent businesses' ability to be creative. In a couple of weeks, I'm doing a panel similar to this um, on uh, Retail Transformation Live. And one of the topics that we're leading on is independent innovation. And the key thrust of this um, is the fact that we take the chain stores, the bigger they are, the harder they are to turn. They're busy trying to come up with a name for the project around transformation by the time the independent business has already pivoted the business and responded to the customer need. It's because they're so close to the customer. They're not just a community service provider, they're a community user. They tend to live close to the business. They'll potentially have kids in school near their business. Their friends and neighbors could be their customers. And it centers them as a real rooted person in the community. And I personally believe that the big businesses could learn an enormous amount from the small. They might not have the budget, so creativity is essential to do things differently. But the way they do things differently really is a hyper-local impact because they're generally just one store and their understanding of the community is so vast. And what really saddens me is when I work with either business improvement districts or local authorities, through my other brand, Grounded Places, where one of the things we offer is we try to support the businesses to maximize the value, let's say in a bid, for their levy contribution. And we see almost zero engagement from the chain stores because they're not empowered. The managers of those stores typically aren't empowered to participate and give voice. And I've been actually trying to raise this conversation with the British Retail Consortium and the Association of Town and City Management and Bid Foundation for about five years, that there is a disconnect in the chain stores between the financial property department who simply pay a levy and they probably pay millions a year across many, many towns for bid levies and the marketing department who, or human resources department who might be able to give hyper-local marketing to those locations who were part of a bid to say, hey, did you know customers, we contribute to a local business improvement district to the tune of X and the result of that has has delivered why and also there's no empowerment of the managers to go and have the voice and until they're as grounded in their community as the independent sector have to be because they don't have anybody else supporting them it's you know me myself and I the buck stops here I just don't think that the chains will ever be able to deliver the level of community connection loyalty and engagement that the independents have the potential to as long as they do all the right things. And, and doing the right things, we've got another question here that follows on from that, um, I'm an anonymous viewer. What should the government concretely do to support positive urban transformations and empower citizens in the way you have just described? 
Um, you know what? There's so much money actually available to local authorities and business improvement districts. There's grants. I mean, I, I, I'm obviously based in the east of England, so you've got Eastern England Development Agency, you've got local enterprise partnerships, you've got still money available out of EU funding with collaboration for growth. So there's a lot of support as long as the, there's evidence for the authorities and the bids that they're spending that money wisely and that there is measurement to say, we implemented, I don't know, a training program around brand presentation and customer engagement and communication. And we invested in a shopfront improvement scheme to enhance the street scene. And the results are the footfall measured at benchmark was X and it went up by 20%. And the retailers gave us their data and their average transaction value went up by 10%. The number of uh, customers they served was up by 10%. Without these tangible measurable criteria, we don't know that our efforts are necessarily adding value back into those uh, communities. And if, if we go back to the point about 50 pence in every pound in an independent goes back into the community economy in some way, shape or form, actually what we really want is for these independent businesses to be as profitable as possible because then they'll employ local, they'll spend local, they will spend with other businesses like them and it creates that positive upward spiral of economic recovery. Can I say something to that? Please do. This is critical that we relocalize revenue, you know, rather than them flowing out to the big, this is critical for any city, for any town, whatever you can recirculate inside that space. So very important point, yeah. And Matthew, you wanted to respond as well and perhaps also reflect a bit on what you think government can concretely do, what, what you would perhaps expect from government. Yeah, I mean, there's just something, what's gone through my head is if you look at historically the share of uh, certain aspects of the retail centre, I mean, back in the 1950s, I think the co-op was the largest retailer in the United Kingdom. And, you know, the market share wasn't the way it is with the the large four or five now, have 80 odd percent. So that's really crowding out independent businesses. And uh, again, that New Economics Foundation report said that there should be one retail business that should, that should have more than 8% of the market share. But I think about 15 years ago, Tesco had about 32, 33%. And I think that is a real issue. And I think it is it also promotes inequality as well, in the sense that you know it crowds out local independent businesses that are, that are family owned and all the rest of it. And then you sometimes with these large corporations get into the issues around taxation that you find ways of avoiding tax. Now we've had a pandemic where we've needed more care workers nurses and all the rest of it and doctors and you know if local government contracts and land and assets are going to uh, companies that avoid taxation again that causes causes a problem when we get to what we've got to as well as austerity on top of it so you know i think we we need, we need a new way of thinking about how to how mm. to actually really put more equality in our economy to actually benefit everyone including how we develop our city centers well i mean on, on what we should get from government i agree with uh Wahari, the, the, the reality is that we're the most centralised country in the European Union. And even American cities, they can do things compared to what we can do. And that's got to stop. I mean, if you go to Germany, Italy, France, local and regional government can do things. And there's been a bit of a shift with the uh, combined authorities, devolution deals and theirs. But ultimately, we don't have powers to do things the way that other countries have around housing and transport and uh, other things as well. I mean, if you go to Denmark, you have, you have these fantastic municipal energy networks where you have decentralised energy city uh, energy networks uh, in the ownership of the, the local authority, I think, which provide really clean energy more cheaply than the national grid do here. So we need more of that, and that would be my ask from government. We've got to allow democracy to flourish, and that means if you elect a, a, a council or a mayor, whether it's Labour, Conservative, Independent and Green, they need to be able to enact political choices, which are going to actually uh, be decided by the people who vote for them. Great. Lahari, did you want to respond? Did I see your hand go up earlier or has, has that point now been made? It's been well, good. Made. <laughs> okay. In that case, I'm, I'm afraid we are now coming to the end of our hour-long discussion and webinar. And um, thank you so much for joining us today for this insightful conversation on the urban future and the role of the high street in the UK's recovery from the pandemic. Over the course of the next few weeks, we will be holding a series of webinars that focus on race and social justice by exploring the implications of the Black Lives Matter movement for policing, history, education and wider society in the UK and beyond. More details will be released shortly on our website and on social media.
If you would like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page on our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And you can also find out more about the work we do at Cumberland Lodge on our website at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. But first of all, or, or lastly rather, uh, thank you again to our four brilliant speakers, guests, Claire, Matthew, Lahari, and Saskia. Goodbye and uh, have a good week. Goodbye. Thank you.